Hello and welcome to Running the Table, an ongoing podcast about running and playing tabletop role-playing games. I'd like to thank all of you who have asked questions, and if you'd like to ask some of your own, please email them to rttpodcast at gmail.com, or you can ask them directly to Running the Table on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Keith, and joining me today is DM Nick from the Very Good Adventuring Team. Hello, Nick. How's it going? Great. How are you doing? Well, it's another fine morning. Fantastic. Uh, so just for our listeners, um, I've listened to a few episodes of Very Good Adventuring Team, but how about you explain a little bit about how Very Good Adventuring Team uh, got started and a bit about what the show is like? Absolutely. So the Very Good Adventuring Team got its start, uh, I would say it was 2017 or so, and I had discovered the Acquisitions Incorporated podcast, uh, or as it was just coming out in podcast sort of form at that point, and I loved it. It was fantastic. Uh, I got into the Adventure Zone and a handful of other ones, but I just wasn't having a lot of luck finding ones that I really liked, and I thought, well, I, I could probably try this, and so I did. <laughs> uh, it of course wasn't until after I got into it that I realized there's like almost what 400 other actual play podcasts out there right now. So <laughs> the world didn't necessarily need me to do it, but, uh, by that point we were pretty committed. So we kept on going. Yeah. Uh, the podcast itself is it's a fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons actual play. Uh, there's a total of three players and then myself, the DM and I would say that we are focused far more on just having a good time and trying to be entertaining than the actual D&D stuff, but we do some neat stuff here and there with the game, and I hope we're weaving a reasonably interesting story. Fantastic. Uh, how about you specifically? How did you get started with tabletop role-playing games and Dungeons & Dragons? I'm always curious about this because I actually <laughs> grew up in Wisconsin, right near Lake Geneva, so I, I've heard every story from, oh, I knew Gary Gygax, to it just sort of happened randomly. <laughs> uh, I have actually been to Lake Geneva much, much later in life, but um, yeah, it's a pretty neat little town. It's cool to see that that's where it all got its start, humble beginnings. But my initial introduction to Dungeons & Dragons was... I think I was probably about six or seven years old, and the cool kids down the block, or probably the really not cool kids down the block, I guess in retrospect, um, they got into playing it and kind of would let me tag along a little bit, like, you know, all right, we're going to start playing, here's a piece of paper, make yourself a character kind of thing. So they more humored me than anything, but <laughs> I spent a ton of time after that um, after, you know, I think the one kid moved away or who knows what happened, but for years after that, I would suck up everything that I could. I couldn't get anybody else to play, but you know, I'd be sitting in my, my, uh, my bedroom with, uh, some graph paper, drawing maps of houses and castles and certainly got into the books, anything I could get into, uh, anything that was available, um, short of actually being able to play. <laughs> uh, which edition did you first start with? The first edition that I got to play around with was the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, the Red Box. Okay. Um, and that was that was like 
the real early part of it when I didn't really get to play all that much, but I, you know, I had it. Uh, the first edition that I actually got to play with and the first edition that I got to DM for was 3.5. Okay. Uh, 3.5 can be really complicated. That was actually the first edition that I ever played. And cool. I thought it was going to be easy. <laughs> I was wrong. Yeah, you open it up and it's like, wait a minute, this looks like <laughs> math. Yeah. Uh, so every dungeon master has usually homebrewed, adjusted, or made variants of some sort of rule, race, or something within their games. What is your favorite home rule that you've ever used or seen used? So this one's... <laughs> I shouldn't necessarily call it my proudest moment, but it's one that's gotten the biggest reaction um, from my players and then from the people that listen to our podcast. So we have a, a wizard in our game, and we're trying to come up with a sort of in-game themed spell for him. And not to give away too much of the story or whatever you want to call it for our podcast, but one of the characters had this sort of prank that he would pull, which was... Uh, and again, forgive the, the sort of crassness here, but basically trying to get people to soil themselves. And eventually we turned that into a uh, a cantrip that he could use to do damage uh, of that specific variety. And it's it's basically just a Eldritch Blast, but reskinned. Um, <laughs> but it has the it has the terrible side effect that if you actually manage to kill somebody with it, it actually turns them inside out. Oh, so, no. Yeah, it's pretty horrifying, um, but it gets a lot of laughs, and the players really enjoyed when we came up with it, so um, so you just roll with it, right? Yeah, and I feel like that is oftentimes an important aspect of running a game, where you have to cater things like that to what actually interests your players, <laughs> even if it's crass. Oh, and we got crass and spades, that's for sure. I, uh, <laughs> for anybody listening, if you want to check out the Very Good Adventuring team, we'd be happy to have you, but, well, just brace yourself. <laughs> Sounds great. Uh, so today, the topic of interest is particularly uh, overcoming and helping to handle some of the issues that players might face while playing a tabletop game. Uh, and so that, that kind of leads us into it is you have to be aware of your players, but the first question that has been, uh, given to us and again, thank everybody for writing in your questions. Uh, my players are ignoring my storylines, my quests and really everything but combat. How can I get them invested in something outside of murder? <laughs> uh yeah there's there, the, you know there should be a little bit more to your game than just murder <laughs> you know the I first point <laughs> yeah right the first point that i would make uh is at a minimum maybe combat is all your players are looking for i have had a handful of players over the years that have just they've come to D D or they've come to tabletop role playing looking for one thing or maybe they don't even know that they're looking for it but there's only one part of the game that really gets them, and maybe that's roleplay, 
Maybe that's combat. Maybe that's exploring and dungeoneering and finding new places. But, you know, it is the unfortunate part that not everybody's going to be super in every part of it. Yeah. That said, happens. <coughs> excuse me. That mm-hmm. said, um, and, you know, and also just keeping in mind that if your players are having fun, kind of like we said earlier, then, you know, let them have fun. Um, but if you actually do want to try and get them interested in something beyond murder, what I would suggest is looking at motivations, thinking about motivations, maybe saving the prince or the princess just isn't what they're into. Um, the great battle between good and evil just isn't grabbing them. There are a ton of other options that you can throw at them, like trying faction work. Sometimes that little bit of uh, intrigue between uh, the Zentarum and the Thieves Guild or the local city watch or whatever, uh, maybe that's what they need to to really get invested in the world. You can also yeah. try things like court intrigue. Um, hmm. You know, the battle between the nobles, you know, do they want to get on one person's side? I have found that players are often very motivated by some smarmy jerk that they just want to stick it to. Uh, <laughs> especially if you've got the murder hobo kind of players, like they're looking for somebody that thinks that is there uh, as an NPC thinks they're better than or above the party. And those parties love knocking those people back down. Uh, you can also try, I mean, save the local dog shelter, you know, really what it comes down to, I think is just yeah. keep throwing different things out there, especially smaller things. Don't put a ton of time and effort into the three-year epic campaign that is spanning the entire world and you think you're going to get them to follow along for every piece at. Just throw out the little crumbs and see what sticks, see what they go for. Definitely. I definitely agree. Uh, and I actually have an anecdote of a similar time. I had a party that was very trigger-happy. They weren't necessarily only interested in murder, But when it looked like combat might be an option, they were so gung-ho and so ready. So, I gave them an encounter where, if they'd just taken the moment to talk, they would have discovered that these are scared refugees escaping a slave ring. Well, about halfway through, they did take the time to talk, and then they felt really awful. Now, they're a little skittish about just starting combat (laughs) willy-nilly. Yeah, giving them a reason to think about it the next time they go into it definitely helps. Definitely. Hi. And along a similar vein, the next question is, my players have completely gone off the rails of my story. Should I even bother getting them back on track or just embrace the direction they want to head in? You know, this is a fantastic question because I have faced this, especially in every homebrew campaign that I've ever done. I found playing adventures from the books, you know, the um, like Curse of Strahd is a fantastic adventure. Going through the Lost Mine of Phandelver in the starter set is a fantastic adventure. Um, the... Oh, I can't remember the name of it now. The Water Deep Heist, uh, I think, is the name of that other one. Um, these are all really great examples, and if you play through these modules or even just read them, one of the things that you'll find is that you, they are just drowning in plot hooks. They're they're all over the place, and you can't miss them, and you just they just keep coming at you over and over and over again. <coughs> Excuse me. 
you need to build your homebrew campaign to that same level of awesomeness. Because if you give your players one door to walk through and the rest of the world around them, they're going to look at the rest of the world. They're going to get fascinated by that one shopkeep you did a funny accent for. Or they're just not necessarily into the exact thing that you were trying to put out there. So you've got to litter the landscape with the reason why they want to get into that main thing that you're putting out there. You know, three, four, five different plot hooks for that one thing you're hoping that they'll actually stumble into. Yeah. Uh, the other part of this, and the really challenging part, um, you know, I mean, this is one of the hardest things in D&D, and it's one of the hard things really just in life in general, is uh, admitting when you've done something or made something, and it just isn't super great, <laughs> you know? <laughs> None um, of us want the, to admit that, though. We're all, uh, if if we're GMs or DMs, we're honestly very likely to be world builders at heart. Mm-hmm. And none of us want to admit when the world that we made is just that little bit too boring. Oh, man, it is so challenging. Um, I think back to one of the campaigns that I wrote, uh, one of the first times that I started DMing again uh, after a long break in my adult life is I had three or four players to start off with and the group kind of grew as time grew, or time went on, rather. And I... They were so gracious. <laughs> they put up with the story that I was cramming down their throat for such a long time. Um, I had this, like, you know, earth-shattering demon god thing that was, like, leaking in, and they got to push it back out and save the world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I just did a terrible job trying to get them interested in it. Uh, I think one of the biggest lessons that I learned out of that experience was, you know, remembering that your players don't actually live in that world, so why are they interested in saving it? Um, yeah. keeping your, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, uh, this plays back to how players tend to latch on to certain aspects of the world that you present to them just because they themselves are interested in it. So that funny shopkeep with the fun accent that you did, well, if they're having a tough, a tough time connecting with the world, little things like that can potentially be used to help them make that connection, I feel. Absolutely. Uh, One of the things that I've definitely done in the past is, oh, you love this throwaway character that I made a really funny accent with? Well, guess what? He's totally invested in checking out this one place, so you now have to go on a dungeon crawl if you want to keep him alive. (laughs) Because he's going whether you whether or not you go with him oh man and every player everywhere loves an escort mission (laughs) well at least when they're you know capable of running and hiding on their own or defending themselves Mm -hmm. if they're well if they're very dumb and wander into battle that just gets infuriating but uh I don't know how much video games you've played. Uh, the poster child for an escort mission done well was always uh, Bioshock Infinity, where you frequently had a escort, and granted, escort missions are always terrible in video games, or almost always terrible. <laughs> but yep. in this case, the NPC accompanying you hid 
was self-sufficient and would provide you with things like extra ammo or healing items. And so you no longer saw them as a burden, but now as a essential utility that you could use during combat during these quests. And yeah, that's that's a fantastic thing to add in. I never played that game, but that sounds like that's pretty awesomely done. Yeah, um, and I actually, if I ever, when I do escort missions, I usually make them either, okay, this person is just awesome to be around and really just hides every time they're in combat, or this person is useful in combat to a point. Maybe they heal you, maybe they... Uh, provide a buff or something similar um my favorite though is it's a it's an escort mission but every time you camp you don't have to worry about rations because this guy brought enough for everybody and makes everybody a great meal and sits down and chats with everyone <laughs> yeah absolutely well they definitely want to keep him alive then yeah um getting us back on track <laughs> uh, what's podcasting without tangents right uh i i have also found uh with my experience with this question i have found that oftentimes if they've gone off the rails of your story and they're really enjoying the direction that they are heading if it's close enough, they don't necessarily know everything about your story. You can adapt it to the direction they're heading in. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's the the classic D and D article, uh, uh, the Quantum Ogre. You know, there's there's two doors <laughs> in front of you, and it doesn't matter which one you open. The ogre was behind it. Um, that's yeah, I think one of the most artful things about dungeon mastering or game mastering. Uh, running a table is that you can find a way to put these adaptable pieces in different places and you can't go so far as to make it so that the player's actions aren't meaningful um, I can say that as a player I've definitely been the most frustrated with the DM and as a DM I've felt the most frustration from my players when the things that they do in the world clearly didn't have an effect you know if you if you if they can tell that you just did the quantum ogre like oh stupid ogre probably would have been behind the other door too like if they can feel that you're doing it man that's that's really going to get your players irritated with you definitely but, but if you can do it artfully if you can slip it in there so that there is a thing that's going to happen and somehow because the heroes are the heroes of the story they just happen to be in the place where that happened or they just happen to catch a clue about it happening that's that's the best thing you can do as a DM is get them so that the plot happens with them uh, mm -hmm. rather than just to them. Yeah. And uh, I just realized that if there's rails, because this question asks that the players have completely gone off the rails with the story, if there's truly rails, then you might be guiding them a bit too closely. We don't want to railroad you know, our players. You know, I feel like railroading is getting a real bad reputation these days. There's times where it's absolutely the right way to go. Um, 
Yeah. Again, you don't want to make your players feel like they're strapped into the cart and there's nothing they can do about it. But there is also a certain amount of that. Uh, I think I've heard it called the player DM contract, where if the DM is pretty clearly put in a bunch of effort, and, and this gets really important, I think, when you're talking specifically about games that have like a lot of miniatures that you know maybe spend, we spent like 10 hours painting or something. <laughs> uh, I've never been a miniature uh, guy myself, but the the DMs out there that put a ton of effort into stuff like that, um, to ask them to shift gears midway through a session can be a little challenging to improvise on the yes. spot. We as DMs should be able to, you know, you always hope that you can. But uh, I can remember one uh, one guy's game that I was playing in, and he had this like 18 inch tall mechanical dragon thing that he has spent. I I don't even want to know how much time he spent painting it. It looked great. But we very nearly didn't go into the room where this thing was. And man, you could see the look of panic on his face. <laughs> the and poor guy just wanted to get this dragon out onto the field. And I think everybody at the table understood that. So we kind of like, oh, but wait, we do want to go into that room. And of course, the encounter was amazing. Mm -hmm. We all had a great time. I feel so like a at a certain point, it, it's not uh, really <clears throat> railroading if you're guiding. Um, there's, there's the presenting a path and keeping them on it, but allowing tangents. And then there's the strap into cart, push down rails. Yeah. And if they're just strapped into the cart, yeah, that's that's not going to be fun for anybody. But I think that an encounter like that where you know it's going to be fun and you've put a lot of time into it is a perfect case for a quantum order. Yeah, absolutely. Doesn't matter which which of the final paths you take in this dungeon. It's got that clockwork dragon. Because I know you're going to love it and I know <laughs> I'm going to love it. You know, the other fun thing to keep in mind too when you're talking about railroading players, especially into the big bad evil guy encounters and things like that, it's not super hard usually to make a reason why they're behind the other door or they're in the in exactly the place where the players happen to be. The the big bad evil and yes. whatnot that you're fighting uh, is is typically going to be a very intelligent, very well <coughs> excuse me. A very intelligent, a very well-equipped, um, a very in tune with, say, the city and the rumor and gossip network, or just knows their realm or their dungeon or their castle very well. So, of course, they're going to know where the players are, or they're going to keep track of where the players are so that they can be there when those things happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and if you're truly trying to plan it out uh, in, say, and this is just me spitballing, but you can have them be doing different things depending on where the players encounter them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, one, of, one of the things that I have done in the past is throw in an Easter egg of, if you go in this room that's definitely unlikely for you to go into, you're going to run into the big bad evil guy practicing his speech. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. You might start combat with him a bit earlier than you want, but it'll be funny. Yeah, that's a fantastic hook to get him in there. But yeah, you know, I mean, I guess really ultimately what it comes down to is is just making sure that, um, to, to go back to the original question, if you want to keep your 
your players somewhat on rails, um, if anything, because that just makes it easier to be a DM. You get a little more time to prep. You know exactly what's going to happen or you know more about what's going to happen. Um, you know, you you have to think about the the core of the plot and why you want the thing to happen in your world, why it's going to happen and what the players want to do about it. And just keep throwing different reasons out there for them to care about that specific thing. Um, I, I, yeah. And uh, going going back to something that you brought up earlier, the uh, player DM or player GM mm -hmm. contract, it is important to note that that contract changes on what game you're playing. So, for instance, on Dungeons & Dragons, it is kind of expected that there will be some magic and maybe a dungeon crawl or some sort of combat eventually. It's really hard to do a, not impossible, but it is difficult to do a uh, intrigue only with no combat at all oh, campaign. So there's that. But then in, say, a, a non-combative game system or a more... Uh, intrigue-focused game system. Um, none is coming to mind, but I know that they exist. Fate, fate would be a great example uh, of that. And in um, fact, yes, yeah, fate. Fate would work. Uh, in a system like that, there's a contract that you're probably not going to have that much meaningful, like, long-term D&D-style combat. You know, and then there's the opposite end of the spectrum where you've got something like uh, Shadowrun, which is mechanics and dice rolling for days. And man, if you ran a campaign mm -hmm. of Shadowrun without any combat, <laughs> that would look pretty weird. Yeah. I mean, and one of my favorite games, it's usually a one-shot game it, all about horror stories, is Dread. And Dread... The only mechanic that exists outside of like making your character is a wooden block tower that you occasionally have to pull from whenever you try to do something that is outside of your realm of expertise or trying to do something under duress. <laughs> and if the tower so falls, you die. It's like D&D, &D, but with Jenga instead of dice. Yeah, it's it's all roleplay D&D, <laughs> but with Jenga. That sounds like a hoot. Yeah. It's tons of fun. Uh, if you are interested in seeing a example play of that, uh, we have a couple Halloween specials up on the other podcast I'm on, Experience and Gold, where we play Dread. Um, but before you do that, we do have one last question that uh, I would like to address. And this is an important one. One of my players is burnt out on the game we're running. How can I bring them back into it and make the story and their character more uh, interesting is, to them? I, I really love this question because this is something that every DM, I think, is going to deal with. Uh, every GM is going to deal with at some point in their, uh, their gameplay career. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry for all the coughing. <coughs> no worries. So, the first thing that I would ask about this, uh, depending on the situation, obviously, but the first question I would ask is, 
the implication of the question is that you previously had their interest and they've now lost it. So obviously the first thing you want to ask is what changed? I've found that in situations that I've had like this or have been around or been a part of, usually what changed is that that character got to be center stage for a long time, or at least for a while. And to make things fair and balanced for the other people at the table, you maybe switch that up so somebody else was the center of the stage. That's something that, you know, everybody's got to deal with in their own personal maturity level, um, not being the center of attention necessarily as part of the campaign. Um, but at the same time, the story isn't interesting if one player is the center of the stage and no one else has any spotlight time. So making sure that you've got a little bit of balance there, that the people are capable of being engaged by the story. Uh, and what I mean by that is that you don't just have encounters based on one specific character's abilities, even if that one person happens to be super overpowered. Or uh, making sure that your your characters have a reason to to care about the story or the people in the story. It's not just one person's nephew or one person's you know great aunt or whatever that's in trouble. It's everybody's got a reason to care about these characters. <coughs> Excuse me. The other thing to really focus in on is if you've got one character that you're just struggling, or one player rather, that you're just struggling to get engaged in the story and engaged in the world, is have one of the big bad evils or one of their henchmen or lieutenants take a personal interest in that character. Uh, you'll find that if you if you watch a lot of movies where there are these sorts of conflicts, uh, you always end up sort of doing uh, what they call bookending. Like one of the first things you see is the big bad guy and the reason that you want to take down that big bad. But then the next thing you're introduced to is like the lieutenant that's right beneath that. And then you're introduced to maybe like a group of henchmen or whatever below that. Well, the first person you dispatch are those low-level henchmen. And then the next person you dispatch is the lieutenant. And then you finally finish it off with the big boss at the end. That, that book ending is a really effective tool for writing stories and crafting conflict. And I have found that if you take that lieutenant and find some reason why they hate this one character, or they really like this one character, because that can be way more interesting if they're uh, a conflicted lieutenant. But if you're walking through the local tavern and just have them roll a dexterity check and they trip and they spill a beer on the lieutenant or an ale or whatever you want to call it, a grape juice, <laughs> they... Uh, <laughs> that... Uh, what could have just been a regular old character now becomes a direct antagonist for that specific character. And now, even if they don't necessarily have as much interest in the grand overarching plot that you're trying to spin over sessions and sessions and sessions, there's this one person that they, you know, they, oh, they just really want to get that person or man, I really need to take care of this because this person's really becoming a problem for me. And to play off of the lieutenant might actually get along with them and really like them. Maybe it's, I really just want to take yeah. care of this and save my friend. Which uh, <laughs> I may or may not have Good going to be able to speak to direct experience. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he low level lieutenant. 
in the big bad evil guys organization <laughs> became an escort npc and now they love yeah him. you know and that's um it's one of the other things that i find really interesting about uh just human relationships and and the way that a lot of them form is a lot of times when you <coughs> excuse me a lot of times when you're dealing with someone in real life that you don't really care for necessarily the first time you meet them or they, they sometimes leave a bad first impression maybe it's even an ongoing thing like somebody that just bugs the crap out of you until you get to know them or you understand their behavior a little better maybe you just happen to get stuck next to them at a party sometime and you you just you know talk to them more but a lot of times those people end up becoming your best friend or close to your best friend or a really dear person to you that level of conflict between two people can really spawn yeah. love or hate almost on a dice roll, you might say. Haha, fun to go into that for tabletop roleplay. Um, but you know, that, that <laughs> I guess to summarize it, that level of passion can sway either way, and that level of passion can be steered either way, and it may go all the way towards hate because you just really can't stand that character, or it could turn into some serious love if you're like, you've find that character endearing or you find a good way to play it off as a dm exactly well thank you nick for the very interesting and very insightful discussion on all of these questions i hope that uh everybody has hopefully learned a little bit about how to handle some of these issues as they arise yeah. You know, I mean, the the so, couple of the last pieces that I'd like to throw out there, just because this has been, I think, some of the mm -hmm. best DMing advice that I've been given, um, and I think it's very applicable for everybody that, that does tabletop. Um, first is just write in a journal after every session you play in, after every session you run, whatever it is, if you're a player or the GM. Um, but just take a couple of minutes and just write down your thoughts. What did you learn? What could have been better? What could have been worse? Um, I picked that up from... Christopher Perkins does uh, the DM experience, which mm -hmm. you can find on the Wizards of the Coast website. And it's effectively, that's what he's doing. He's just taking a quick journal uh, in the form of a blog of just what did they learn and what could be better for next time. Beyond that, the, the best piece of advice for anybody is just keep doing it. Yeah. You know, there's the whole discussion of like uh, 10,000 hours of something is what gets you to mastery. Mm -hmm. uh, who knows if that's really true, but ultimately... The only way to get better at being a DM or being a GM is just keep on doing it. Uh, you can read all the books, you can watch all the videos, you can take your time with uh, fascinating and amazing podcasts like this one. Um, but ultimately, the best tool you've got is just keep playing. Definitely. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, thank you again, Nick. This has. Yeah, uh, this has been Running the Table with my guest today, DM Nick from the Very Good Adventuring team. Please follow links in the description of this podcast to check out and support the Very Good Adventuring team. I'd also like to thank you for listening, and if you find yourself with questions that you want answered about anything tabletop role-playing game related, please send them to rttpodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out to Running the Table on both Twitter and Facebook.